Hey everyone, welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Library podcast. This is the podcast where we connect you with the brightest minds in the commercial real estate industry. From founders of the largest development companies in the world to CEOs of game-changing property technology companies. Today is no different. We're speaking with Peter Politis. He is the CEO of Graybrook Realty Partners. Graybrook is often the equity behind many of the largest developments in Canada and the US. If, for instance, there's a site for sale that's publicly listed or not publicly listed, probably three different developers have called Graybrook and said, hey, do you want to get in on this action? They are insanely deeply connected and incredibly smart. Um, They're pioneers. One example of a transaction we talk about or a deal we talk about uh, in this podcast is what they're building in Miami. They're building an 800,000 square foot ultra luxury tower. It will be the largest tower south of Manhattan. I mean, these guys are just game changers. So you're not going to want to miss this if you enjoy discussions about development or doing larger deals. Enjoy this discussion with Peter Politis. And before we dive in, I want to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, KMB Law, KMBLaw.com, KMBLaw.com. Check them out. We love them. Thanks for listening, guys. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Library podcast. You know me, Dama Tamanawala. You know Garrett McGillivray, my co-host, as always. And joining us today is the CEO and a partner at Graybrook Realty Partners, Peter Politis. Peter, thanks hey for joining us. My pleasure. How are you doing? Doing good. Fantastic. Um, for, Peter, for, for, for those who might not know what, what Graybrook does, can you share a little bit about the company and, and kind of the size of your organization? Yeah, I mean, Graybrook's a, a private equity firm, and we focus on investing in really development-based real estate opportunities. So that really means is, you know, we're buying typically land and we're partnering with various development firms to build condos, high-rise, low-rise townhouses, single-family homes, purpose-built rental. We're essentially creating value and developing. We're not, uh, haven't been an organization to kind of buy core income-producing stuff to, you know, clip a coupon or, or make a spread off of uh, off of debt. Uh, we're, we're typically more value creation-based shop. Um, the business has been around for almost 17, 18 years now. Um, we was one of the founders and started the business. Uh, today, we we have a, just about 19 or 20 billion uh, under development in terms of value of the completion of our uh, real estate. Uh, most of it's in the GTA uh, across uh, Southern Ontario, but we have about 4 billion U, uh, in the US from South Florida to Denver, Atlanta, Nashville, Mm-hmm. other places uh, and, and in Texas and Houston as well. And uh, we have a little bit of a value add business where we kind of buy older apartment buildings, we renovate them, increase the rents and typically sell them on to a stabilized partner where we have a couple to two and a half thousand units there, mostly in Montreal, Ottawa, Quebec City uh, with a partner, called, uh, our partner called Marlon Spring on that. Right. Nice. And And so in a lot of these cases, you're saying that you're do you take projects through the, the rezoning process or are you strictly the equity capital that comes into play? Yeah, I mean, I we our investment thesis is really hands-on. I know like everyone says that and everyone says they're hands-on and their execution and they're on top of it. But I can't stress that like we have 
womb to tomb development experience in-house that can take everything from acquisition, zoning, planning, sales, marketing, financing through to construction. So when we buy something, we're never like, not only are we not passive equity capital or like board level stuff, like we're in there day in and day out looking at everything from zoning, making submissions, helping execute these projects, sales, marketing, unit mix, names, like financing, like womb to tomb. We talk to trades during the tendering process. Like we do the full development work in partnership with our, with, with our development partner. It's simply because over the years, we've accumulated a lot of knowledge in doing this stuff. We have, you know, 15 or 20 of the largest development organizations that are our partners. And over the last 20 years, we've done, I don't know, over 90 developments now, right? So you, 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 I didn't know a lot 20 years ago. Right. And I know a heck of a lot more today with a lot more to learn for sure. But I think that our ability to kind of take the, the best things we've learned from all of our best in class partners and, and constantly be at the forefront of like, thinking about things differently, we, we really get involved in the execution. Like it, it's, everyone says it, and I just haven't seen a lot of people actually do it, at least not the level that we think you need to do it to be long-term successful in this business. Right. So, by the way, I love that womb to tomb. I actually- Yeah, that was a great idea. <laughs> um, so, like I, I know that Graybrook is in so many major deals across Toronto. Can you talk about how the process typically works? Is it that a developer finds it and brings you in? Um, is it that, you know, several developers are calling you at a time about this? You know, how does that really work? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. We we look at stuff with our, so our partners organically have their own deal flow. They're, they're looking at stuff on market, off market, they're bidding on stuff. And we look at stuff with, with our partners. I would say 80% of what we buy is off market. It's just happened to have been that way through relationships and sometimes it's our developers and their relationships and i would say at least half the time it's us originating an opportunity and bringing it to one of our partners whether it's brokers or landowners or something i mean many moons ago what what some of the people who are selling or involved in properties thought i may as well go to the group that puts up most of the money because if they're on board it's a lot easier to get their development partners on board uh to buy something so we 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 have a whole bunch of different areas that we're, we're looking at and it, it, we have had a situation where we've had more than one partner looking at the same deal and we've managed to conduct ourselves, you know, very appropriately and saying, saying, you know, we're looking at it with somebody else, can't talk to you about it. If you get it and we don't get it, happy to talk to you about it. But we stay pretty conflict free. I mean, we couldn't work with as many people as we have and do and be involved with such intimate information if we didn't, you know, govern ourselves appropriately, because that's the easiest way to like end that partnership, right? To, to ever, ever, ever share information that you should share with somebody else. Right. And where, and where does that, uh, sorry, <laughs> okay, quick question. Um, where does that capital come from? Are you guys raising money from, you know, public, public guys, big institutions, wealthy families? How does it work? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the truth is, is that when we started, there was basically we took capital from, from anyone that would listen to us. We didn't have a network of people. It was like friends, family, uh, you know, kitchen counters and you know, living room couches. Yeah. Uh, but over the years, we've built. You know, we have over seven thousand active high net worth investors in thirty two countries. We report in multiple different languages, from Hebrew and Cantonese and Mandarin and other things. And um, and and really, it started off with just individual investors, and then it's high net worth investors, and then it becomes family offices, and we have institutions. We have well-known international billionaires investing in a deal with, 
you know, a family doctor or, uh, you know, one of the trades. And, and they're all investing on the same terms and conditions. And that includes our institutions. We, you know, we manage a few hundred million dollars of just institutional equity that is, you know, development-based stuff. So we, we kind of joke around that everyone gets the same deal that my mom gets when she gets involved in a deal. Right. Uh, whether you're writing a $10 million check or a $50,000 check. Uh, and if the best deal isn't good enough for you, well, then that's okay too, right? Because that's really the way that we do it. So on that basis, how did you get started? Like you obviously had a few people listen to you right off the bat and invest some money, but like what was your first project? How did you come up with this idea of, of creating Book? And Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, I wish I could tell you it was just like grand orchestrated plan. And if you come to my office, I can show you the blueprint of how we started <laughs> and got exactly from here to there. Like that would be a great story. Uh, but it was really a function of like uh, me, my two partners, Elias Vanvakis and Sasha Chuchus. Um, Elias founded a company called TLC Vision. Uh, they did laser eye surgery. They did Tiger Woods' eyes and Vince Carter's eyes and all those things. And he he made some investments um, in private equity, like a bunch of different tech and transportation logistics. And, and one of them was a real estate deal. And then I started working for him pretty much right out of school. I wasn't a partner. I didn't, I didn't have any equity. I had a un unflattering salary that there's no need to brag about today. Uh, but I had, uh, I, I got to get hooked up with good people. And, you know, Sasha joined shortly after there. And we were both just, you know, employees at the time. We didn't have any equity, didn't have uh, even, a, I don't remember what my title was, but, you know, whatever the bot, whatever the lowest possible denominator in a two-person shop is. So, yeah. um, and Elias had made an investment in a real estate development. And we said, you know, this is really cool. We should do more of this stuff. Not exactly how you did it, but in a different way. And Elias, who was still running TLC and another coming time, he was like, that's great, go for it. I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't understand. We've been going, I've told you everything I know about real estate development. I don't know anything. <laughs> and then that was really how it, it started. And and the, the the first two projects that Elias invested in were a condo in Yorkville and another one at Mount Pleasant and Eglinton. Uh, and then Elias was like, okay, great. Now, if you want to do more, like go find other people to, to do it with. And, you know, it was really just Sasha and I you know, we had one development partner and we did one project and we did another one in Liberty Village and we said we should do more of these. And we did something in, in you know, Victoria Park in Eglinton. That was a super small deal where I remember like when we closed it, we're like so excited and it was like 60 townhouses and $2 million. Uh, and, 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 and then from there it grew. We brought on other partners like the Goldman family and Stafford Holmes and then Tribute and then Citizen and then Fernbrook and Diamond Corp and then Empire and then, you know, Castle Point and Sorbara and Treasure Hill and all these big developers and Marlon Spring and all these guys. And and we just grew organic. Like every we never had a five year plan. Like every year we just like put our heads down, worked until we were exhausted, did mm. as much as we thought we could do without taking on undue risk. And then, you know, five investors turned into 15 and 15 turned into 50. And then two employees turned into five. And then I remember when we had like 10 employees and you know I was literally involved in like making our brochures and I, and I had this brochure we keep it today and there was like I don't know like eight projects on there and I'm like we've reached the pinnacle there's nowhere to go from here we, <laughs> we're at the top of it we, we've done everything now what else is there to do <laughs> right and, sure. oh. and, and it's, it's funny over the years because you look back and you're like oh my goodness like that was kind of funny but we we really just grew and today we have like 70 professionals we have offices here we're opening up an office in Miami shortly. We had a presence in Vancouver and Israel. Uh, you know, we we look at the map of where we have projects and who we've worked with, and it's been a privilege. And it's been, uh, you know, we've never forgotten that these people trust us with their money, right? And that's something that's really been 
we take it very personally. Like, I don't know how to explain it other than everyone's investment is very important. It's not just an investment. It's a personal transaction almost. And, and that's how we conduct ourselves, really. And, and, and what sort of that, – that's amazing to think – like, you talk so quickly and just – and it even makes the journey sound faster from going from, you know, less than 10 employees to now – what is it? Seventeen billion in, in value? Yeah, it was twenty. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean that—that's just extraordinary, right? Can you can you talk a little bit about what differentiates? Actually, what differentiated you guys at the beginning? Because you were on this—you seem to be on a trajectory the whole time. But in the early days, how did you find success building those relationships and partnerships? And yeah, I mean, I think we were just good, honest people who did what we said we were going to do didn't try to take on too much and didn't purport at any point, even today, let alone back then, to be something or someone that we're not. We have our strengths and we have our weaknesses and we have, you know, the way that we see business. I think we got a little bit lucky in, in getting introduced to the right people. And sometimes when we didn't get a good vibe from somebody, we just for no specific reason just didn't get engaged with them. And we've managed to find ourselves partnering with some of the best, not just execution and balance sheets and size, but generally, generally good people. Like we've become very close. All the the principals and these developers, they they've become friends. They become our relationships. They're very important to us. I, I and and I think that's just been how we are as people. So I I, I think and I, and I talk a lot about this with with our staff and with the with the different departments that we have. But you know we're we're here to just do what we say we're going to do. And and it doesn't mean that we always you know get the exact result that we want at the exact point in time that we want. But if you're if you're you know doing the right thing and you're making the right decisions and you're not putting anyone, uh, you know, you're, you're putting the investors and our partners ahead of, of anything that's ever of our interest. I just, I feel like that's how to be long-term successful, right? And that's that's what we've been trying to do. We try to keep that personality. I mean, there's people in our business, right? Like you guys see it, you're interacting and you're dealing with principles. It's not, not that we don't have institutions and we don't have public REITs that are our partners, but at the end of the day, they're all people behind all this stuff. And if you, you treat them appropriately and you, and, and, and you're, and you're, you're honest with them and, and you understand what their 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 points of you know tension can be you you can find a long-term successful partnership interesting sounds like really good organic growth with you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah I which mean, is that's... which is obviously very hard because a lot of people hit roadblocks or potentially get too greedy or you know potentially have things happen where they take on too much and you, you know i i actually i i was speaking to a a group of university students, of MBA students from from a uh, from actually the Tel Aviv University, and um, and and some guys are like, well, you know, if, if you lose this opportunity, you don't make that dollar. Like, how is that good business? So, I, I mean, a, I'm not in it for the last dollar, no matter what. It's just not my personality and not how we think. But when I try to like, if I really want that person to see it my way, and I really want to put it in their terms, I'm like, how about this? How about being long-term greedy instead of short-term greedy? Because there's way more money to be made in long-term greedy than short-term greedy. Right. If I had to put it in a way for you to understand why it's <laughs> worth giving up a dollar, and, and, and that is why. Because if you are if you want to look at it that way, then go be long-term greedy and go be in this business for 15, 20, 50 years and go be successful for 36 months and tell me who's going to be ahead. Right? Yeah. I love it. Clip it. If we had a moderator, this one you tell the moderator. Hey, clip it. Clip that section. <laughs> we'll put that in the promo. Um, um, can you can you tell us, Peter, about the 
because we'll get into what you're doing now in, in a second, but can you tell us about maybe a story or a moment when you thought, wow, we've just graduated. You know, we've we've just hit into the stratosphere of the next level. Maybe a, maybe a little bit forward from when you had the brochure. Yeah, I mean, it's weird because I don't actually ever think I've had that like we've arrived moment. I just, I it was funny. I, I used to joke with 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 Sasha a lot. And I'm like, you know, I used to wear a really fancy suit 15 years ago or 20 years ago, and that used to be a meaningful percentage of your net worth. That fancy suit, right? Mm-hmm. So you always thought to yourself, you're like, you always like thought of yourself as like, I'm going to be wearing this nice suit. And by the way, I joke with him because he wears a suit all the time. And I only like, I wore a suit to the office one day for the first time in like 15 years. And someone was like, did somebody pass something bad happened? And I'm like, no, like literally like three people are like, I'm sorry, do you need a hug? I'm like, I'm okay. I'm fine. Nobody passed away. But I, I just think that like, it's just been so natural to like, we haven't had one day where we didn't have this investor and then institutional investor gave us a hundred million dollars and it changed our lives. Like we didn't have that. Like it was literally, I wish it was like this like thing where it was like hard, 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 easy. And then everything's easy. It's, it's almost like we've always just built like one step at a time, one brick at a time, one project at a time. And, you know, I think that we're probably more guilty. And I talk about this a lot with, with, the, with our staff. We're so busy that we don't celebrate our accomplishments enough. Like it's like, Oh, we got, and then it's like, you're already on to the next. Right? right. And I think it's it's something that you just need to for everyone to like sit there and celebrate a little bit. So I think we've been a bit guilty of not doing that. But I don't have this like and now it's all different moment, really. Hmm. I'm okay. at my desk till two in the morning, 15 or 20 years later still. Is that there? There's there's the same moment. So. Yeah. Yeah. So so I guess just to switch gears a bit and focus on some of the things that you're working on now, um, obviously, you're based out of the GTA, but why, why have you focused a lot of your strategy on, on areas such as like South Florida in the United States? Yeah, so it's 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 all kind of like the, the same story of the business. When we started in the business, we did condos. We just We bought a piece of condo, we developed the condo. We thought, well, what if the condo market slows down? We should get involved in the single family or ta- ground-related housing. Okay, let's do some of that. And then we said, well, you don't always have to build the stuff. You can buy land and just approve it and sell it. And then, well, there's a whole GTA. And then there's, you know, the greater golden horseshoe area. And like, as you look for like ways to like expand and diversify your risk and your exposure. And, you know, we try to build portfolios for our investors that are like super diversified across product type and risk. You know, the next thing to do was look down south. I actually, I was born in Toronto. I lived here till till grade three. I grew up and I was born in Markham. Uh, And then I moved down to Florida and I stayed there through high school. So Florida was like really where I grew up, I knew the market. Now, that's not why we went down there. We went down there originally because we were condo guys. What did we start with? And, and f- there's only a few markets in the US where they have condos. It's like New York, South Florida, San Francisco, and like the rest is like pretty scattered in terms of like real condo volume. Mm-hmm. And South Florida was the only place that sells condos like they do up here in Toronto, which means they pre-sell, they take deposits, and then they build. In New York, you're taking a construction loan and then a MES loan or equity, whatever, and you're building a, a building that hasn't been sold yet and you can't use deposits in the capital stack. That's like a whole new level of risk. Interesting. Right? So Florida was the only place where you could use deposits in the capital stack like we do in Toronto. So it was the logical place to start was down there. There was a condo market and the deposits worked, which meant you know risk in our view was lower and off we went. Uh, and then that's where it grew into like purpose-built rental buildings and 
And that's where we, you know, did multiple projects in Miami and then out to Fort Lauderdale. And then, you know, we've got a couple of developments going on in Denver, another one in Atlanta, another one in Nashville. Like it was very organically happened where where's the next logical place? We happen to know it. We understand it. And uh, and that's why we went down to South Florida. And, and frankly, I think that we got there. We started investing in 2015 or so in South Florida. And we always thought of it, the city of Miami, a lot like Toronto was like 10 or 12 years ago. A lot of stuff is come, going on. A lot of people, the city's changing. And now we're really seeing it. The amount of people that are coming in, the amount of jobs, tech, finance, all the people that are moving down there. Like we're seeing a real um, explosion of the growth there. And I think there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a long runway for that city down there. Right. Are you guys involved with that? Uh, what's that massive project? It was, it was nonstop in the news in Miami. Are you guys- Oh, the Waldorf Astoria? Yeah, yeah, is that you? Yeah, yeah, we're partners with, uh, with PMG. <laughs> Uh, the Waldorf. We figured if you're going to build a condo in Miami, it may as well be a hundred stories. So it's uh, or, else, or else, what are you doing? Yeah, I mean, you can't go down there to build six stories. It's a full three-hour flight. But um, you know, <laughs> we—it's actually the tallest building south of Manhattan. When we bought it, um, it wasn't Waldorf wasn't associated. We bought it. We thought we're going to make a real design, build a really tall building, and then kind of the market was slow for a little bit. And us and our partner thought, you know, I think it would make sense to bring in a brand, and then. We did this amazing thing where we went and met all the brands. We met the Four Seasons and we met Waldorf and we went Mandarin and we met Rosewood. And I, we went around the country and, and saw different, not just the country, like the world really. We went to the opening of the Bangkok Waldorf, which uh, that's a good story that I can tell offline. We were there for 36 hours, not a horrible time. Uh, and then we went to Amsterdam and checked that. And we, we met all these operators. At the end of the day, we settled on Waldorf. It's like the oldest five-star brand in the world. It's got a global following and we just got really excited and, and it's owned by Hilton, which many people don't even know that Waldorf is owned by the parent company Hilton. So having like a giant public company that's also your partner is not the worst thing, right? Okay. So so we're, we launched sales, we, we have an in-house sales team and we partnered with um, the Eklund Gomes team, which I don't know if some of you guys ever seen million dollar listing New York or LA, but Frederick Eklund uh, is one of the co-listing brokers on it. and. You know, it's been uh, it's been great. We've been working on it and, and plowing through a lot of units and sales. So we're we're excited. We're hoping to break ground, uh, you know, Q1 or next year. That's amazing. So to on that topic, because given the fact that 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 oh, building oh, itself is a bit ultra luxury, I would say. <laughs> you also have another project that's currently in Toronto, uh, 138 Yorkville. Um, what what is your vision of creating these types of you know, I guess it's not even just upper class. It's more of like elite class uh, <laughs> condominiums, like one, even one step even higher. Yeah, what, I mean, what is, sorry to interrupt, Peter, for those who don't know, what were you, it's, it's, it's how many stories and how many total units? It's, so the Waldorf is a hundred stories. Our, wow. our actually residences start on floor like 41 uh, because the first bit of it is the hotel and other amenity areas. And we kind of like to joke that our, our residential starts where pretty much every other building in Miami ends. And uh, it goes all the way up through through 100. And if you're afraid of heights, it's for sure not for you. But if you want to see, you know, Puerto Rico and Cuba and uh, Bahamas and uh, half of Florida, it's uh, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty that's, awesome. That's amazing. So I, I always make the joke on here. Okay, go back to uh, go to graybrook.com forward slash CRE library and get a discounted condo or something like that. Yeah. We need to actually set that up. That's um, right. But 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 uh, what, I, what I wanted to know was the, uh, 
the Yorkville one that Garrett mentioned, I think that has some pretty interesting statistics for total floors versus the total units too, right? Shows how kind of luxury they are. Yeah, I mean, I think that like we do a broad range of things, right? Like it's it's it's, it's kind of like our portfolio diversification. The, the person who's going to buy a ten or fifteen million dollar condo in Yorkville is not the person who's buying a townhouse in Shelburne, Ontario, or in Fergus, or in Cambridge, or uh, uh, we you know we have state homes that were partnered with Treasure Hill in Kleinberg that are you know three, four, five million dollar houses, right? So it's you can have diversification in a geography amongst product type, duration, and all that stuff. So 138 Yorkville, which is a project we've been a lot involved with a long time, you know, technically it's 29 or 30 stories, but it's 70 units, right? Probably somewhere between 60 yeah. and 70 units. And I think there's a lot of people, and not, it's not to talk bad about other projects or even good about other projects. We think that it's hard to deliver a luxury building uh, in Toronto. It's not, it's not easy. Planning takes many years. People have to plan for it from the beginning. You have to have the right area, floor plates, ability to do so, services. Like it's hard to have all the ingredients. And and we just thought that the one property that we have at the corner of Yorkville and Avenue Road allowed for all this stuff to be put together. So our ceiling heights, like, you know, the, the up until floor 25, our slab to slab ceiling heights are 12 and a half feet, which means that we can have 11 foot clear ceilings with no bulkheads in the entire unit and then vaulting up to 12 or 12 and a half. The top four floors are 14 and a half foot ceiling, you know, slap to slap. You can have 13 and 14 foot clear ceilings. Outdoor spaces, we have two, four and five meter, three, sorry, four meter trees built into our terraces that have outdoor summer kitchens. Our, when you're walking in from the inside of the building to the outside of your terrace, it's like a flat surface. There's no ledge to step over. You know, we, the smallest unit right now is designed to be about, I think it was 2,400 square feet is the smallest unit in the building, not just private elevators and services. So these are these are things that obviously having a Yorkville address helps, right? And having a building that's boutique enough to be luxury, but big enough to provide the services where your maintenance fees aren't, you know, egregious relative to market. Like it's hard. We have a lot of properties in Yorkville. We own the corner of Young and Scholard, one Scholard in partnership with Citizen. Uh, and, and, you know, that's not the same building as 138 Yorkville. We own 101 Yorkville that we're redeveloping with First Capital. We own the northwest corner of Avenue in Davenport and another luxury building in Davenport and Bedford. Like there, you can't do all these things at certain points with every building. And if you find the right building and you think far enough ahead in terms of what you're planning and what you're doing and parking ratios, I'm design we're designing an underground parking garage that has private car vaults. Why do you need a car vault? Because people who have very expensive cars, turns out you can't get insurance that you want for that car in a regular open parking garage. So it's gotta be mm. climate controlled and it's gotta have heat sensors and all these different things. So if you wanna put the whole offering, you you need to pay to do all that, but it's gotta do it in the right area because the price that we're gonna ask is gonna be you know somewhere around three and a half thousand dollars a foot. And people think, oh my God, you're crazy. You're just trying to make it. If I'm delivering this product, that's what it costs to make it and to deliver it is at a different level that no one's ever seen. So if you're going to do it, you got to do it at the right place. And, and we think us and, and our partner in, in First Capital there, I think we're going to deliver something that's really exciting. And, you know, condos probably are going to start somewhere north of six million bucks or seven. So, you know, there's not a studio on the third floor that you can buy at 400 square feet. Right. <laughs> that's amazing. And, yeah. And I'm super like 
I don't want to say too much, but I'm super excited about our pet house there. Some of the features that things going to have, like this will be the most expensive, you know, pet house ever sold uh, in Canada for sure. It's, it's unreal from cantilevered pools and outdoor terraces and, you know, multi-thousand square foot glass party rooms on the roof. Like it's, it's, you know what? I think Garrett, you should look into, maybe it's something that we can, we sh you should look into. It could be perfect for you. Oh yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Just let me get my checkbook out. You know, I can get right <laughs> in cash. <laughs> I, I like to I like to think about the uh, the celebrities who who might call a Graybrook office and and you know the person's like oh yeah Drake's on the phone again I yeah, just want to get the same. unit but you know the weekend's not giving it up or whatever <laughs> you know uh, <laughs> that's that's really we're 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 excited we're we're super excited about it yeah this this might be too broad a question now um, because it it sounds like you have a bunch of maybe different buckets of capital and you guys are incredibly diversified, but is there a set of criteria that you use to make that invest, not invest decision? Um, and what, what might those be? Yeah. I mean, it, it's really, it's so hard because buying a piece of property that is in Curtis, Ontario, that is five years away from draft plan approval and then buying, you know, I, I use our property at Young and Scholard. It's a, under an 8,000 square foot floor plate where we're building and we're approved now for 43 stories. Wow. Like it's a world of difference. Like the, just the, the, the differences in what you're looking for and underwriting and what your risks are and, and time and all those things. So it's really hard to put it like in a broad question, but I, I, I kind of distill it down to something very simply. We like to consider ourselves as like what I call sunset buyers. When I buy something, I, I want to feel like I bought something and I made money before the sunset that day. So mm. like, I want to make sure that we're buying something of it, whatever it is. Like when we're buying a piece of land at the heart of it, there's value in our buy. And, 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 and that could mean different things to different people, but that's just kind of like a very general way of sitting there saying, we are buyers of land at the very root of what we do. Yes, we're a part of a manufacturing process, but you have to buy that land. You have to buy it at the right price with the right capital stack. You know, over leveraging something creates other issues, right? And, and making sure you have the right kind of capital buying it. So it really all goes back to like the super rudimentary, boring thing of like, did you buy the land? Did you buy it for a good price? And mm. how much, if any, debt do you have on it? And, and you know, then it goes to execution partners and balance sheet and timeline and zoning risk. I mean, it's so funny. We just, we didn't know how hard the space was when we started. It was like blissful, blissful ignorance. It was like, oh, why, why would you buy a finished building with, with tenants that you could easily underwrite when you can buy a raw piece of dirt with 10,000 moving inputs, right? Yeah. We, just, we just started there. It wasn't like <laughs> by design, it was I just where we happened to, to, to start. And, and now it's like, wow, it's way easier when it's already there and built and tenanted to like underwrite and think through like the, the, the differences. So we just kind of got a lot of experience in, in thinking through like a vision for a, a project from zoning and cost and, and frankly, it's a very, specifically in, in Southern Ontario, there's such a, it's a barrier to entry for people. Like, you know how hard it is to buy a piece of dirt and get something approved anywhere? Like, mm -hmm. in, in different places, like we buy something in Atlanta, it's pre-zoned. I don't have to worry. It's not, you know, we, we, we literally bought a piece of property in Denver and there was a, a, a process where someone tried to designate it as heritage. And anyways, we went with the city council and it was unanimously voted that it wasn't heritage. And we got a demolition permit issued the next day. If I apply for a demo, like literally like this, the council meeting finished at 2 a.m. Toronto time. So like midnight Denver time. 
and I wake up the next morning and like within three hours, the things in my inbox, like for that, that like yeah, it's that's, different that's barriers incredible. to entry here and development. Like someone just can't come in and, and be a developer here. It's, it's hard, right? Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. There would be protesters out front of the uh, out front of the building the next morning in Toronto. Yeah, wow. they, they, they had like foreign. They were like, you know, we can't designate it heritage. The property owner doesn't want it to, and they have rights, and we should protect their rights. And I'm like, can you all move to Toronto? Like, are you available to come in and have some of those? None of that matters. It's you know, it's 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 a different range here. So we've gotten used to working in here, and frankly. I probably wouldn't change. You know, it'd be great if the planning process was a little more detailed and timeline was a little more linear. But you know, I, 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 I some, somebody asked me one time at the Land and Dev Conference, like, what would you change? And I'm like, are you asking me as Peter, the principal and owner of a private equity real estate firm, or like Peter, the Torontonian human? Because as a Torontonian human, there's lots of things I'd want to change to get people houses and do the right things. As someone, as a business owner in the space that I'm in, it's okay to be hard. It, it, it allows us to be profitable. Right. Does that make me a bad person? Like I don't know. <laughs> no, it makes sense, and you can have you can have pull both those opinions as well. So, um, yeah. So, and sorry, Garrett, go ahead. Uh, I was gonna I was gonna just switch gears slightly. Um, moving back to Miami, um, specifically with your society project, uh, Society Winwood. Um, I believe that has a co-living um element to it uh so i wanted to ask sort of what your thoughts are on co-living as sort of you know a, a potential branch out of, of apartments um in the future yeah i'm glad you guys asked because i think there is like a general thought that people understand what co-living is co-living is like i'm building a co-living apartment and it's some version of living in like a dorm with super small suites and everyone's jammed in there and it's either cheap and cheerful it's not the live people do it for cost but it's not the living experience and it's like everyone you know wants to get out of there as fast as possible like that's mostly what these like jam co-living buildings have been we see it as something totally different typically like 20 to 35 percent of our building is like rent by bedroom but we have you know the other the rest of the building is traditional one you know junior ones one two three studio whatever moving mm -hmm. on and, and and that's because all we're allowed to do, and it's easier to do in the U.S. particularly than it is here, is we create these heavily amenitized buildings. Like we have a building in 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 Wynwood, like you said, or in Los Olos that's now leasing, and that building in Toronto would probably have seven or eight thousand square feet of amenity space, like general same size. We have seventy thousand square feet of amenity space, wow. so we have these big spaces, and people want to stay in the building because we're doing like curated living. We have whiskey tasting and cooking classes and you know we have gyms that are larger than equinox program living it's all technology based we don't have keys in any of our buildings everyone's opening up with an rfid bracelet or their phone or whatever you know you know you guys come visit me in my unit i'm going to send you a key to my place in the whole building for a week you go away for a week it's gone there's 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 wow. food and beverage there's like I, I joke around that if i was like 21 and i moved in there i'd be like i'm 38 now i'd be 38 years old and still living there and would have made nothing of myself and would have been the happiest person in the world possibly. Um, so like, it's not these like dorm rooms, these small, cheap, like, it's like, how do I get luxury apartment feel and amenities? And how do I stay in the building and be part of a community? And everyone has their own bathroom and we clean their living spaces as part of the program. You know, internet's included, all these stuff is included. And it becomes like a curated living experience that I can either rent by bedroom and 
sit in like the main and main parts of a city, but for the lowest total dollars. But as a developer, because the spaces are smaller but well designed, and you can live both in and outside of your in and outside of your unit, your per square foot rent goes up, so your margins are better, and you can offer a good living experience with all these things. As you have higher total dollar rents for the building, that you can give people a lifestyle for it. So, and, and we have roommate matching services, and like we joke around that you know we'll move you once, we'll move you twice. If it's the third time, maybe it's you and not everybody else, and it's just not for you. <laughs> we we haven't had a lot of those issues, and. At the end of the day, like we 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 kind of had a joke when we started um, that kind of became like an internal tagline that we like we cure loneliness. Like if you if you if you if you sit there and you're moving around from city to city and you know you don't know people or you're you're coming into a new place or a new job or new parts of your life, like you know we thought it was going to be like younger millennial people. The people that live there is like such a broad range of stuff because you can live there renting a three bedroom, you can live there renting a bedroom, you can you know sit there with a significant other. We got. People who move up in the building together, they get you know a new job or a better job or a raise. Like there's all these things that it becomes a community. And then we have societies in South Florida, and we have societies in Denver and Atlanta and other places. And we have people moving from place to place saying, "I want to live in this kind of curated lifestyle." So we think of co-living as totally different than how do I make these small, cheap rent, you know, by bedroom stuff, and try to make it a place where you don't want to go. We we have such open areas we have like charity events battle of the bands contest that we have there like when i go there i have a place in south florida when i go there like i want to go hang out at the building i i i, I bring my wife i'm like there's there's a, there's a charity event going on there's a we have movie nights and like you know by the pool deck like it's like this whole experience that we live in and we think it's for a bang for your buck no one can get in cheaper in terms of total dollars because rent by bedroom total dollars is the cheapest but you're not sitting there being treated as you know, an inferior renter by getting a worse product. You're getting the great product. You might have a smaller space, or you might stay in the building and eventually have a bigger space. And, wow. and you're saying that <laughs> the bottom line is better, even with the increased amount of amenity space. Like obviously, the the per bedroom amount is probably higher, but then you have ten times the amenity room. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in the U.S. they typically have a little bit bigger amenities, but our amenities are you know, 50 to 80, you know, 50, 80, 100% bigger than, than normal. But you also, it's how you design the amenity space. Like, where is it and, and how does it flow and where it goes? So if, if I'm renting by the bedroom, if a market rent is $3.50 a square foot, I can get four bucks and four fifty and five bucks a square foot for a rent by bedroom, right? Mm -hmm. So when you, when, you, when you look at my blended costs, it really doesn't cost as a percentage of NOI any different than a regular building. I might have a higher per square foot rent, but empirically our buildings have leased faster because where else can you go for 1300 bucks and get your own place and your own bathroom and live in a beautiful building? Like the answer is there is no other option unless you want to go to a different part of the city or a much older product or somewhere away. So we, we offer a product that's not out there. It draws a lot of people and the building itself ends up having like uh, you know, a community and a vibe and a personality and, 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 and people talk and, and our retention rates show it, our ability to drive rents show it. And when we started, it was hard, like telling a bank, we're going to do co-living. It was like a construction loan. They were like, oh, you're one of those. No, 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 no. I thought we could trust you, Peter. Yeah. I'm like, did I grow another head? Like, I don't know. Why are you looking at me like that? Um, and, and obviously it helps when the whole building's not co-living. But now that we've proved out the concept in many different locations. Like, I think we're really excited, and I, and I really think that it's something that is filling such a big gap. Like, 
in the US, so much of what is built is like large format units, large one bedrooms, large two bedrooms, large three. Okay, great. But as rent inflates, who do you think can afford $5,000 a month? Like how much of the population do you think can afford five grand a month, three grand a month, even 2,500 bucks a month in some cases? And then where does that go five years from now? And how do you drive your rents and how do you grow your, you're, you're running out of people, right? And, and I think that's been our focus is smaller. We, we take like the Toronto, people don't realize how advanced Toronto is in condo design. Like the ability for us in 640 square feet to do like two bedroom, two bath, wide shallow units that are very livable. Like we have thousand square foot one bedrooms in Atlanta, right? I remember we did a development in 2007 and our architects and our development partners designed a unit that was 780 square feet, two bedrooms, two baths. And we're like, we are the smartest people in the world. We got two bedrooms and two bathrooms and 780 square feet. We are the smartest people in the world. And, and we take those efficiencies and, and we actually have lines in our buildings that our U.S. partner called Property Markets Group called the Toronto Twos. Basically, there's like these intelligent design two-bedroom units that we either rent as two-bedroom or rent by bedroom as well. And, and really, it's driving bottom line because I can get the same total dollars for smaller spaces and people don't want to pay it. Do, do you see any uh, opportunity for co-living in the GTA? Everyone always asks me that, and, and I, I think co like the traditional like there are people doing the traditional co living that's not like a dorm, but like a little less focused on luxury. It's so land is so expensive, and we have so many restrictive building policies that it's so hard for someone to make sense of fifty thousand square feet of amenity space when you can only have seventy thousand, and you can't get any more density, and it's so expensive, and build form is so complicated, and all that stuff where. I'm not saying that it's impossible for people to do, but if we wanted, I don't think that we can deliver the same living experience for the same value that over the long term people are going to really love. Like there's there's a place in the market for cheap, smaller co-living stuff because people just need cheap living. Like that's just not what we've built today. And it's not something that I think the society brand is not something that we can replicate down there up here because of, of those reasons. Could, could it work up here? It already does. People need it, like affordable housing. Like it's just not it's not something that we've done yet. But you know, they 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 need it. Like we're going there. Yeah. With or without us wanting to. With so with us not being able to replicate that, it does sound like the ideal place to live, right? It sounds like you might never leave the building. <laughs> not like for years, you know, you gotta you wanna party, you're going down to the kitchen, you you know. Um, well, especially in these times, right? Um, yeah, true. But so so Peter, if, if we can't have society up here, what what sort of big changes do you think we will see in in Canada? And we'll expand outside the GTA, but in Canada over the next five years. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting because a lot of Canada is driven by like three markets, right? Like you have like Vancouver and the Greater Vancouver area, you have Montreal and you have Toronto. Like yeah. they're all kind of their own living, breathing organisms. When when someone talks about Canada's national housing price average like it's almost like irrelevant it's like saying like the average weight of a human like i don't even know what that means like i don't know what it's not like <laughs> right, right. Doesn't, like are you, are you nine feet tall are you three feet tall are you eight are you uh, like whatever right? right so that to me is like such a tough thing to say in canada i mean i think every market is going through like their own different things right now like montreal we're in there in the value add space and people are seeing so much relative affordability in real estate in montreal that 
money that was coming into Canada that was going predominantly in Toronto and in, in Vancouver more so than ever is going into Montreal because of the value. You're seeing a whole bunch of institutional players that never would play in that space that are now going to to like Montreal as an example. In Vancouver, there's not a lot of land to develop. They're having different supply issues, shortages for developing new houses, but their population growth isn't as much and more money that's gone there has been kind of parking money rather than like, let's say Toronto, where you have you know, 100 to 120,000 people coming in every day. And they actually physically have to live somewhere and there's not a lot of places for, for people to live. So Canada is like a little bit of a different segment in every one of these places. Like look at, you know, Al Alberta, the market's strong there right now. And like two years ago, someone thought, you know, Alberta is going to be a ghost town. No one's ever going to go to Alberta again. Right? right. So there's all these different things that are happening. And in Toronto, the inclusionary zoning that's coming in, whether, you know, it right now is scheduled for January one of this year is like, I think it's a game changer for condos and not, it's not going to make it cheaper. It's kind of make it more expensive. It's going to make projects less financially profitable. I don't think landowners are just going to say, sure, pay me less. They, they did it in 2017 when the low rise market went down 20%. So like, I don't know where, like you want to keep taxing the golden goose in development. I get it. Okay. But at some point you're like, literally, if you set out to try to make housing more expensive to try, like, I'm going to create policy for the next 10 years. Housing will be more expensive. You could have orchestrated what the city did, right? right? And, and, and not with bad intentions. It's There's things that policymakers and city don't, they don't necessarily always understand the cause and effect. And they don't always understand who to believe or who to talk to about what's real and what's not in that case, right? It's a complicated problem to solve. And it's no, there's no light, fixed it, you know, turn the switch on. We're good. It's complicated. Right. Right. I, I think, by the way, for our, for our audience who might not know, we're, we're seeing a, a similar trend here. We, we filmed an episode with uh, with Center Court, with Andrew Hoffman and, and Bader Al-Khatib. <laughs> they were not a fan of inclusionary zoning either. Um, but for our audience who might not know, so inclusionary zoning, the city of Toronto proposed, it seemed initially like uh, something that could provide a little bit more certainty on what your future development is going to look like. Right. So that is that is that kind of am I going down the right? Inclusionary zoning is basically the city will force every condominium development within certain parameters of transit, other things to do some somewhere between three and upwards of 20 percent affordable housing. Right. And, 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 and you have no sorry, you have no ability to appeal that to LPAT or other bodies. So like. They're just going to tell you what it is. Yeah. And that's complicated. <laughs> yeah. And and again, something that initially came out with probably good intentions, but is just going to result in higher prices for the end consumer. Or, or a, a lack of supply. I, I We Altus came out with something and it was like, it was like good in its simplicity because it got the point across, which was like, okay, at 5% affordable housing, a regular pro forma goes from here to here. And at 10%, it's no longer profitable, and at twenty percent, it's like even less profitable. Oh my god! Well, no one's gonna, gonna build, build anything. <laughs> no one's gonna build. So like, if I and, and I can't, I have to be able to pay for the cost of affordable housing. So who, it's just gonna, I'm just gonna have to charge more, or I can't even build it if I wanted to, unless I'm just in the hobby of losing tens or hundreds of millions of dollars building stuff because that sounds like fun, but it's a lot of work to just sit there and and, and lose money all the time. So it's just. I don't know where it goes, right? And it's it's complicated. 
in, in terms of practicality, so January 1, this takes effect. If you own land or if you are a developer, what are you doing right now to ensure you're less affected by that? Listen, I a couple things. If you get your application in by uh, before Jan 1, 2022, you're grandfather. I can tell you, I'm speaking to some landowners, and I'm like, guys, I know you're talking to me because I want to buy your property. Don't sell me your property. Sell your property to somebody because literally it's impossible for someone to pay you the same amount of money on January 1 that it is now. In fact, it's not even Jan 1. It's like they got to get their application in by Jan 1. You better sell it now. This is like a broker, like public service announcement. Sell your land now if you want to get maximum value because I don't even know if we can buy. Like we're trying to buy four or five other condo sites this year to get our application and be whatever. Right. I don't know how Jan 1, I pick my head up from my pillow after you know, on New Year's Day, how do I buy a condo property right now? I don't know how, I don't actually know how we could underwrite it. What the, if we assume worst case scenario, someone's going to start giving me their land. Just take it. You can have it. That, okay, thanks. Okay, now maybe it works. It's, it's complicated. Yeah. So I don't think we're buyers. As somebody who buys 500 to $800 million of development land in the GTA a year, I don't actually know how we buy condo land under the current rules. And maybe there'll be more guidance and, and, and more nuances that we understand make it more palatable. As it is today, I don't know how I buy something that I, I can't have an application before the end of the year. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna hear all the uh, all the brokers here. You heard it here. Now is the time. You have to sell. But it actually is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is not a drill. This is an actual emergency. It's not a test of the emergency broadcast system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you go and then you go and capital gains is gonna increase. And they're like, that's too much now. Now that's too much. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just take my land. Just take it. I don't even want it anymore. You're gonna have it. I guess this is a project that you are, are particularly interested in and, and have a lot of passion for. But I want to ask you about sort of Delos Living and sort of those that wellness certification. Um, sort of, sort of, what is that, and, and you know, how are you guys involved? Yeah, I mean, I think Delos Living is, is essentially you can think about it kind of like lead certification in the sense of like that are environmentally friendly buildings. But these are well certification for buildings. It involves clean air, lighting, water, other things that go into uh, a building. I mean, it, it's it's obviously so top of mind with what's going on with COVID across the world. But thinking about how we can live in healthier buildings is something that we think is really important. And I think given where we're at now in the world going forward, it's something that everyone I think is going to want to ask about. I think it's going to be important in offices. I think it's going to be important in in buildings. I think it's going to be important in residences, condos. Like people ask questions now, like whose air am I breathing, right? Mm. What am I doing? How, where is this water coming from? How is all this affected? And and you know, Delos is a is a is a U.S. company that we've made an investment, in, and we're their partner uh, across all of Canada. We're their exclusive partner um, um, with. Um, but for us, it's the next evolution of what people should expect out of where they live and where they work. And you know, recently, um, uh, Scotiabank announced that they're well certifying Scotiabank Arena. So that goes with air filtration and lights and water. Different uh, yeah. Yankee Stadium is doing it. Like all these different things. And and I, and I don't I don't. There's a bunch in Toronto, like huge organizations that you guys would know. I don't know if I'm allowed to say them or not yet. So I'm, I'm not going to put my foot in my mouth because my partner Sasha has been leading the Dallas Initiative with Brandon Crom being our president there. So I, I want to be careful with what I say. But what we're doing here is effectively creating a standard for why we think we should be living and working in, in these healthy buildings. And it's it's a certification that we're working with 
from retailers to offices to residential people. And I think it's something that we're really passionate about. And I think it's important to create that standard for everybody to, to exist in. Wow. Yeah. And especially relevant in, in today's um, current uh, environment. Who's yeah. My breathing. I, I've never asked that question actually, but maybe now. <laughs> well, it's interesting now, right? Like, and that's the kind of things that when people are building new offices or building new, or we're selling something in the Waldorf or selling something at 138, or even in regular places to know that there's air purification and there's different things. And, and this is not us creating the standard. Like, Dalos has a partnership with the Cleveland and Mayo Clinic, like the international standard around the world. I wish I could tell you that Peter and his laboratory with Sasha and Elias <laughs> right, made this like that's just not what it is. It's right. we're bringing this to the forefront, and and you and now that people hear it, you'll be surprised how many times you see the well-certified sticker and logo, and you're going to hear it more and more around because I think it's the next wave of what people expect uh, out of their 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 living environments and working environments. Excellent. La okay, last last two questions. These are these you can give very short answers for, even maybe a two-word answer. Um, where where is an area, a new area, where you see a lot of growth in terms of geography in Canada? I I we have been investing, even not that we haven't for a long time, but heavier in what I'll call periphery GTA markets: Shelburne, Aaron. Caledonia, Fergus, other places. Like people want, there are some subset of people that want houses and don't want to live in high density and they can't spend, insert, you know, unattainable price here forever, wherever it is. And that is somewhere that we've seen these communities where people are moving out of Brampton, they're moving out of Mississauga, they're moving out of, and they're moving out to these more periphery areas. The, the, um, the amount of money they have to spend and what they consider expensive, what those areas previously were, there's a lot of upside opportunity. I mean, we bought a property in Shelburne with Fieldgate. When we bought it four years ago, people kept asking me where Shelburne was. Um, and we said, you know, you can build a, you can sell a 40 foot detached house there and our pro forma for $600,000. And now we're selling 36 foot, you know, units for 1.1 to $1.2 million, right? Because for $1.1 million in Richmond Hill, you can get 84% of my townhouse, right? right. just functional. So I, I think in Canada, that's something that we're focusing on uh, you know, whether it's Peterborough and Lynn, like there's just there's opportunities out there and like the more periphery markets than people generally think are the sexiest places to invest. OK. Um, and then, Garrett, why don't you ask the last question, the million dollar question? Yeah. So if you personally, this is you, this is you as the human, not as the, the private equity fund uh, president, um, personally had a million bucks in cash, uh, where would you invest it? Sure. Uh, I can tell you where I do invest it. Uh, it's really in, in in land at the end of the day, right? Like I I I I believe that owning land and whether it's for development for other stuff or through our, our our structures, I just think that there's a lot of ability to generate long term value. I think it's an it's probably one of the only, and I can probably think of one or two other ones, but it's one of the only assets in the world that has real value that's not traded on a mark to mark exchange. They trade everything on exchanges, currency, stocks. Dogecoin, whatever Dogecoin is, right? Like yeah. commodities, pork bellies, orange juice, lumber. You, get lumber. You, have, you can do like a whole hour on just lumber prices going right. up. Like it makes Dogecoin look like a, a tanking stock, right? So <laughs> at the end of the day, when you have a real finite asset like that, that and it can be farmland, it can be development land. Like we've seen Greenbelt land trading for over $100,000 an acre. I don't know what they're doing with it, but they're, 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 there's different things. So like to me, 
And maybe it's like the good old Greek, you know, son of Greek immigrants in me where, you know, I either have a restaurant or a parking lot and I can't cook. So I, I, I buy land. I mean, that's just really the functional reality of, of, where, of where I put the money. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us, Peter. My pleasure, guys. It was a lot of fun. Was, uh, we should do it again sometime soon. I absolutely will. Thanks so much. Thanks, Peter. Hey, thanks so much for listening. This is the end of the podcast. If you like this podcast, please remember to like, comment, subscribe, share. The whole nine yards really helps us grow, and we we sincerely appreciate it. Uh, One big thing is let us know in the comments who you want to hear from. We're always searching for a way to bring more value to you guys and discuss topics that are even more interesting. So let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Or you can reach out to us directly, either Garrett or myself. All our information's out there. So, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Have a great day.